This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Colossians. It tells us in this passage in verse 16, For by Him all things were created. He's the creator of all things. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. So when you read the creation story in the first few chapters of Genesis, what Paul tells us here in Colossians 1 is that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, was the one who was given the privilege of creating everything. Jesus is Creator. Do you realize that all of creation points to the person of Jesus Christ? Today, you learn from Pastor Gary's message that Jesus is the Creator of all things. Everything that you see in this world, all of the beauty that amazes you, Jesus created all of it. Pastor Gary encourages you to praise and thank Jesus for all that He's done. Praise Him for all that He's created. Every good and perfect gift has come from God. He is the beginning and the end of everything. Take some time this week thanking Him for all He's made. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Colossians chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So Romans 12, 2 tells us, listen, we need a renewed mind to be able to discern and test what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And the way that you really renew your mind is to read the Bible and to get God's Word into your heart and into your thoughts so that you might have a renewed mind to be able to more clearly discern what is God's will, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the first C of discerning God's will is the counsel, the counsel of God's Word. The second one, again, many of you have heard me talk about this before, but number two, it's the comfort of God's peace. And there's a great verse right here in Colossians. If you jump over to chapter 3, look at verse 15 with me here in Colossians 3. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Okay, look at it again there, verse 15 of chapter 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Now that, that phrase there, to let the peace of Christ rule, to rule in your hearts, it's a Greek word, brabuo, and brabuo means uh, to act as an, you look in Strong's Dictionary, it's, it actually says to act as an umpire, to act as an umpire. And an umpire is one who's entrusted with the responsibility of, of calling what is fair and foul. And to use that, that judgment and that discernment in a game to determine, is that ball fair? Is that ball foul? And that's what the Bible says God's peace does in our hearts to determine if something is fair or foul in our life, if something is true or not true. There's something about God's peace. Now, this is not an appeal to emotion. This is not say, you know, when you get that fuzzy, warm feeling, it must be God's will. But it is simply to say it is an aspect of discerning the will of God. And if you, here's how it often works. It often works in terms of the absence of it. If you don't have God's peace, don't move. There might be something that looks really 
appealing or some person who looks really appealing, some, some opportunity, some, something that's, you know, come across your path and you think, that, wow, this really, this really seems appealing. This really seems interesting. It's fascinating and, and all this kind of stuff. But if you lack that peace, that inner peace, don't do it. I can't tell you how many people have ended up in one of our offices as pastors because they went against their peace, and now they're in a mess. They violated their peace. And so Colossians 3.15 is a great reminder to us that one of the ways, an aspect of discerning the will of God is whether or not you have His peace. And if you lack His peace, then don't move. Look, like a stoplight. There's red, there's yellow, and there's green. If it's red, of course don't move. If it's green, go for it. But if you have even that amber, yellow kind of hesitation, don't make a move. You just wait. Wait on the Lord. Because if you don't have His peace, please don't violate it. Uh, usually we regret it when we do. And Philippians 4, 6, and 7 reminds us, don't be anxious about anything, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so in order to get God's peace, we've got to spend time in prayer, and we've got to really discern what do you want, Lord, and whether or not he gives you that peace. And if he doesn't give your pe- that peace to you, then just stay put and don't make any major decisions without it. And then the third C is the confirmation of others. Uh, th- this is, you know, many places in the Bible. Second Corinthians 13, 1 says, Let everything be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Proverbs eleven fourteen says there is safety in the multitude of counselors. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 talks about someone might have a word of knowledge for you. Again, I've always warned people, though, if you get a word of knowledge from someone, make sure that it's always confirmation, never direction. You have uh, a direct line to the Lord as well, so make sure that you are not making decisions just because someone else told you they thought it would be a neat idea, because they're not going to be the ones who have to end up with the consequences or the results. You are. So you make sure you have that from the Lord, and then God, in a wonderful way, can bring confirming words. And sometimes I've noticed that people don't even know they're being used by the Lord. But God will use them as a confirming word for you. And somebody will say something, and you've already been praying about it, and you've got, you've got God's peace about it, but you know, you, you're just waiting for that confirmation. And somebody will come up and say something to you out of the blue. And it'll be like, okay, Lord, that's that, that's that other confirmation that I was waiting on. But, but these are the ways that we can help to discern God's will. Paul's praying for something here of the church at Colossae that has not changed even for us today. We need to know the will of God, and we need to continue to live a life worthy of the Lord that we might please Him in every way. Keep going back here now to the text in chapter 1 and verse 12. Let me read verse 12 again because verses 12 and 13, he's going to now mention a very important concept that we need to understand. Verse 12, he talks about giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Underline that in your Bibles or highlight kingdom of light. Verse 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, underline that, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, between verses 12 and 13, Paul is painting a very important picture for us that we need to understand, and uh, this, this can sound somewhat mystical. I'm not getting into the mysticism of the heresy of, the, of this church, but, but I, I only mean it in terms of this can seem a little odd to us because I'm about to talk about something here that Paul references that is unseen. He talks about two kingdoms. 
He talks about the kingdom of light there in verse 12, and he talks about the kingdom or the dominion of darkness in verse 13. There are two unseen kingdoms that are at work in in the spirit realm, and you and I are a part of one of them. Every single, there is no demilitarized zone. There is no neutral kingdom. You are either part of the kingdom of light or you are part of the kingdom of darkness. Now, this is spelled out to us all throughout the Bible, not just here in Colossians. If you go backwards a couple of books to Ephesians, just go back to the left to Ephesians chapter 2. It's only a couple of pages in your Bible. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians 2, in the first few verses, Paul talks back here in Ephesians 2 about how before you come to know Christ, we're all a part of the kingdom of darkness. And he mentions in Ephesians 2 verse 1, he says, as for you, you were, this is past tense, before you, before you came, became a Christian, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom, notice these terms here, ruler and kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who, who is that church? Satan, the spirit who is not work among those who are disobedient, Satan or the devil, the accuser, the dragon. He's known by many different Lucifer, by many different names in the Bible. He's the spirit at work. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the kingdom of darkness among those who are disobedient. Verse three, he says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, and it is by grace you have been saved. Okay, so back here to Colossians. I just wanted to show that comparative uh, passage because Paul is making the, the, the statement about the reality of two very different and diametrically opposed kingdoms. One kingdom is of this world, and one kingdom is of heaven. One kingdom is temporal. One kingdom is eternal. One kingdom's ruler is Satan. One kingdom's ruler is the Lord Jesus. One kingdom is darkness. One kingdom is light. And before you come to know Christ, you and I were a part, or maybe presently are, if you don't know Christ, a part of the kingdom of darkness, just by default. We're born into the kingdom of darkness. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Jeremiah tells us, beyond all things, who can know it? We are corrupt. We are sinners. And therefore, we sin. And our nature is dark. And our thoughts are dark. And our actions are dark. We're of the kingdom of darkness. Now, that isn't to say that you're possessed by Satan. It just means you're under the dominion of of the kingdom of darkness. And Satan happens to be ruler of that kingdom. And he will do whatever he can to deceive you, to lie to you, to coax you into uh, uh, a more allegiance to his kingdom and, and to even eventually die for his kingdom because Satan knows that he is going to ultimately suffer eternal punishment and he wants as many to suffer with him. That's his ambition. He, he, he hates you because you're made in the image and likeness of your heavenly father, the creator of heaven and earth, God himself. And so Satan hates you. He's opposed to you. He's opposed to your marriage. He's opposed to your future. He's opposed to your life. He's opposed to your kids. He's opposed to everything about you. That's the kingdom of darkness. And all of us stand as slaves in this kingdom with our feet in the manacles of of this slavery on the auction block. And God sends his son Jesus to ransom us. 
out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the son God loves. This is what Paul writes about here. Now, there are kingdoms here, kingdoms of darkness, kingdom of light. Jesus said about the kingdom of light, which also kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, those are kind of interchangeable often in the Bible, not always, but often. Jesus said in Luke 17, he said, the kingdom of God will not come with your careful expectation. Neither will people say here it is or there it is for the kingdom of God is within you. Now listen to that again. The kingdom of God is within you. Now hear that from Luke 17 with Matthew chapter 6. You know the the Lord's prayer when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. There's that line in there, thy kingdom come. A lot of times people think they're praying for the millennial kingdom of God to come on earth. Listen, friends, God's kingdom is going to come whether you pray for it or not. That's going to happen because that's on God's divine timetable. What may not happen, however, is whether or not his kingdom comes to rule in you. That becomes something you need to pray and ask because with every kingdom, there are two things. There's always a ruler of every kingdom by definition of a kingdom. There's always a ruler and there are always subjects to the king. By definition, a kingdom has to have a ruler and subjects. Otherwise, there's no, there's no kingdom. So Jesus describes a kingdom that is to come. There is a millennial kingdom. That's a whole other Bible study, and that's going to come. There's going to be a physical, tangible kingdom of God that comes upon earth, and then this present earth is going to disappear, and the present heavens, a new heaven, new earth. That's a whole other Bible study. That's a whole other physical, tangible kingdom. But in the meantime, when he talks in Luke 17 and Matthew 6 of the Lord's Prayer about the kingdom, he's talking about the rule and reign. Who's going to rule and reign in your heart? Who's going to rule and reign in your life? That becomes your choice. Because by birth, by default, we we enter into the kingdom of darkness. By choice, we respond to what God has done by sending his son on the cross to rescue us from that kingdom of darkness and to bring us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And that takes a yielded heart that surrenders to his lordship. And you have to make that decision. Every single person has to make the decision. In John 33, Jesus said... To Nicodemus, when, you know, that whole part about how, how can a person be born again? He goes, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So that kingdom reign has to begin in our hearts and happens by virtue of our surrendering to the ruler, King Jesus. And that becomes a personal confession of faith and a decision that you're going to surrender your life to the rulership, to the lordship of Jesus as king. And then you become part of this kingdom of light, and you are delivered from, you're ransomed, you're rescued from the kingdom of darkness. And the price that was paid to rescue you and me out of the slavery of the the dominion of darkness was the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he shed for us. Amen. So Paul writes here in this language of kingdom and dominion and light and darkness, and I I don't want any of us to miss this. He's talking about all this because this is important for us to understand in terms of who's going to rule. Either by default, Satan is going to rule in our hearts and in our lives because he is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's been given temporary dominion of this earth. Yes, God is sovereign and God's on the throne and he's over all, but he is allowed when he expelled Lucifer from heaven, when Lucifer rebelled against God, when when Lucifer was expelled out of heaven, Lucifer, Satan was given earth as his domain. The influence of Satan is prevalent in our world. 
You know, people often wrestle with faith because they want to know, you know, if God's such a loving God, why is this world so messed up? And why is there murder and rape and theft and and all this kind of tragedy and terrorism and and, and disease and all this kind of stuff? And people wrestle with it and and they're they're like, "I, I can't understand a God and why would he allow? Well, because what you're seeing played out is is the dominion of darkness. And you see Satan having a field day trying to wreck and ruin as many people's lives and nations as possible. But God put in motion a redemptive plan to rescue us from this dominion of darkness. That's why Christ came and died on a cross for our sins. Because God knows this is, this is a terrible place. And he offers us the hope of heaven and an eternal reward in him by receiving Christ as our Savior. So he wants to rescue us. And that's why Paul uses this language here in verse 13. For he has rescued us. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom. This is God's initiative here. He's he's taking us, bringing us, rescuing us out of this dominion of darkness, bringing us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. In the kingdom of darkness, you have condemnation and damnation. In the kingdom of light, you have redemption and forgiveness. I mean, it's a no-brainer. It's like, what, what do you prefer you, you want damnation and condemnation? Or do you want redemption and forgiveness? Because redemption and forgiveness comes, comes through Christ as we are rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. Let me read verses 15 to 18, and then we'll, we'll call it a night because there's a lot in this, so I'm just going to give a quick overview. Verse 15. He, that is Jesus, because He's still talking here about the kingdom of the Son, so we're talking about Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, or King James says, the preeminence. Now, there are seven things right here, and it's a mouthful, but there are seven things that Paul writes specifically about Jesus, his identity, and then ultimately his supremacy. And here are the seven things. I'm going to put all seven things up, and then let me just go one by one. Take a look here again. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Underline the word image in your Bibles. It is the Greek word icon, E-I-K-O-N, icon. I don't think we still do, but at the church, we used to have a copy machine, and the the name brand of the copy machine was Icon, because it's creating an exact image. You you know, when you put a piece of paper in to make a copy, it was appropriately named Icon, because that means an exact representation. Jesus is the image of God in that he's the Icon. He is the exact manifestation. He is the visible manifestation of an invisible God. Jesus is God, okay? Now, there are some false religions that teach that Jesus is similar to God. Jesus was a created being by God, and Paul could have written in using the Greek language, instead of using icon, he could have used the word 
homo ioma, which means similar to God. But he did not use that Greek word. He used icon because he wants everybody to understand that Jesus is like a stamp, an exact imprint, an image, and manifestation of the invisible God because he is God. This is what Hebrews uh, 1 verse 3 talks about, how the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So he's setting the stage here for recognizing, look, I just want to tell you who Christ is, so then when I address these heresies, you'll understand who Jesus really is. So number one, he's the image, the exact manifestation of God. Number two, he mentions also in this passage that he is the firstborn, there in verse 15, he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, this is where, like Jehovah's Witnesses talk about, well, see, Jesus was created by God. He's the firstborn. This, this word here, firstborn, is prototokos in the Greek, and it means one with supremacy or privilege. It doesn't mean that he was created or birthed by God like he's, you know, inferior to God. Jesus is God. God is one God represented in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is given preeminence here, or he's having authority or privilege over all creation. Number three, it tells us in this passage in verse 16, for by him all things were created. He's the creator of all things. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So when you read the creation story in the first few chapters of Genesis, what Paul tells us here in Colossians 1 is that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, was the one who was given the privilege of creating everything. Jesus is creator. Number four, he's also sustainer. Because he says there in verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. You know, the earth is spinning on its rotation. We can't feel it, but the earth is spinning on its axis, rotating at 1,040 miles per hour. 1,040 miles per hour. And Jesus is there, pictured kind of like on his, on his index finger, like spinning a basketball. <laughs> that's, what, that's, what, that's what Jesus is doing. And if that were to ever stop, because he's holding it all together, if that were to stop the, the, the rapid deceleration of the earth spinning on its atmosphere, the, the earth would completely break apart. It would completely be destroyed. So it is, it is the Lord who not only has created all things, but he's sustaining all things. He's holding all things together. And one day he's going to take his hand off and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth because this present heaven and present earth are going to be disintegrating. And so he's the one for the moment who's sustaining all things. Number five, he's the head of the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Okay, as a pastor, I'm just a leader of the church, but the head over me and over you, over all of us is Jesus. Jesus is the head of his church. He is the one who is supremely in authority. Number six, he is first among the resurrected from the dead. He mentions that also there in verse 18, and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And that's the seventh thing that he makes mention of here in, in summaries. Like, so that over everything, because he's God, and he's creator, and he's sustainer, and he's the firstborn of the resurrection of the dead, and he's just supreme. He is preeminent. Your 
Colossians 2, 6 through 7 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here at Cornerstone Connection, we are committed to providing teaching that helps you become rooted and built up in Christ. Pastor Gary Hamrick is working through Colossians, and it is full of wisdom that will establish your hearts in the faith. If you want to take this one step further, we have companion resources available for you. These digital study guides are for those who want to learn more about today's message. You can find these resources and so much more on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can subscribe to our podcast or download our mobile app. Hours of great teaching from God's Word in the palm of your hand. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry out of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area, check out our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, to find our location and service time. If you have specific prayer requests, you can send them to us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. And remember that we are always giving thanks for you when we pray for you. We can't wait to connect with you again next time at Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know